Well, we are taking a break from John 13 through 17 for Advent in order to work through Isaiah's prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. And in the United States, you know, we call this time of year uh, Christmas time. And what we mean by that is really, and, and I'm not trying to be cynical here, but what we really mean by this is, is cultural holiday gift giving time. And I love it. I love every last bit of it. You know, we in my house and in my car, we've been pumping sleigh ride, white Christmas, and all I want for Christmas, which is a classic, by the way. This sounds like, you know, oh, I really love you, but really it's kind of a, a, a sick burn because all I want for Christmas is not much. It's you. I love that song. Jingle Bell Rock or the Peggy Lee uh, classic, Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. Uh, in fact, it hit me yesterday that I have probably been listening to Johnny Mathis's Christmas album for 48 years. And I'm not even close to being tired of it yet. I love that album. That said, for the church, Christmas does not actually begin until December 25th, and it lasts for 12 days. That's the 12 days of Christmas. And the days leading up to Christmas are known as Advent. And Advent is the Latin term that simply means he is coming. It's a, a traveling term, and for the people of God, Advent is a season of expectation as we look forward to the coming of the Messiah. It is a time of, of waiting and hoping, and believe it or not, it's actually a time of darkness, as if we are watchmen waiting for the sun to rise. That's why our Christmas Eve service ends in candlelight. That's why we have candles going in the service right now. The Messiah, of course, is the promised offspring of Eve, the promised son of Abraham, the promised king of, of David's lineage, the promised kinsman redeemer that, that Boaz's life symbolizes. He's the promised fulfillment of Israel's hope and in turn, the hope of the nations and all of creation. So we believe, of course, that the Messiah has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's why we are, are gathered here today. So the question ought to be asked, okay, fine, if we believe Jesus is the Messiah, then why focus for a month like we're gonna do on a book of the Old Testament that never mentions Jesus by name? Why not use one of the gospel accounts? And, and while the gospel accounts are obviously very good, in a nutshell, Isaiah is one of the most important books for understanding what the New Testament authors understood Jesus to actually be fulfilling. Now, just as an aside, Isaiah himself was a prophet ministering roughly 700 years or so before Jesus, and he had uh, the not-so-enviable job of preaching repentance to a people who would not listen to him and would not repent and would not turn back to God. And because of their rejection of God, Judah, which is the, the kingdom he was ministering to, and in particular Jerusalem, would be overrun by the Babylonians. And these were the events that led to Daniel, for example, being taken off to Babylon. But even in the midst of, of God's warnings of judgment, that if they will not turn, he will discipline them. And even in their darkest hours and darkest nights, there was always, always the promise that God would remain faithful to Israel and to his promise to redeem the world through Israel. Well, that takes us to our text today. It's Isaiah chapter two. We're looking at verses one through five. 
the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Well, this is the word of that same Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, this is such a beautiful and important passage for understanding who the Messiah is, who Jesus is, and what he was fulfilling, the hopes of Israel in his life, and his death, his resurrection, and even now as he continues to work even more so in this world. So Lord, I pray uh, for me, I pray my voice would hold up. I pray I would not be any more annoying than I already am uh, with this voice. I pray I would not be a distraction because you're good. And I hope that we will see you and that we will grow in our knowledge of how much you love us and how much you care for us. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. This is actually my second take on the messianic prophecies in Isaiah. And the first time I worked through them, uh, the riots in Ferguson, Missouri had just happened. Remember that? Uh, that was December of 2014. And since that time, I'd say a few things have happened. There's been a bit of political upheaval. There's been more mass shootings. There's been a pandemic. There's been lockdowns. There's been insurrections. There's been floods. There's been earthquakes. There's been, you know, the West Coast has been on fire. And it's as though actually the whole world has been on fire for these last seven years. And the unrest and the injustice and the oppression and the wickedness that are so clearly on display, both on a, a wider cultural level, but also on an individual level, when we consider all these issues, they're not ultimately going to be solved or fixed by the American justice system or the addition or taking away of rights. Now, those things are deeply important. I think they're deeply important. And I think because of our callings as Christians, we should be involved with things like public policy and the pursuit of justice. But still, humanity, including the very best the church has to offer, has not been able to bring about any real or lasting justice or equity or peace. I mean, it's, it's ironic that Caesar Augustus claimed to be the son of peace. And the way he brought that peace was by slaughtering thousands upon thousands of people. And that peace was brought about by a hammer, right? That's the way the world tends to approach peace. And again, I think Christians absolutely should be involved in their communities, not, not least of which is because God structured Israel to be a just society, but also because we're called to actually love our very real neighbors, to be concerned about justice, you see. 
is to be concerned about loving your neighbors well. To be a good Samaritan, for example, is to be concerned about justice and the good of someone else, no matter who that person is. And we, we approach those things as God defines it. Even so, despite our best efforts, which are often deeply flawed, we cannot eradicate the root causes of why this world is the way it is. Now, to be sure, good laws, like what we see in the Ten Commandments, they do restrain the human heart, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We need it. But they can't change our hearts. And the Bible's claim, and this is at the heart of Isaiah's prophecy, is that the only, it's that only the Messiah and the inbreaking of his kingdom can redeem the world and bring about a truly good, righteous, and just world. As the Bible says repeatedly, put no hope in princes. Put your hope in the Lord of lords. Now that said, justice is at the heart of the gospel. But does that sound right? Does that sound right? Is this how we typically talk about the gospel? Now, to some of us, what I just said, it's, it sounds suspiciously like the sort of people who offer to pray for you when your house is on fire and then walk away without help, offering to help put out that fire. It's like when Christians say some group of people or some area just needs the gospel. And what we typically mean is if individuals come to faith, faith then it will transform a town or a community. And you know what? Sometimes it does. But sometimes it doesn't. I mean, after all, part of what people found so enticing about this land in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries was that it was a haven for religious freedom. And Protestantism, things like Presbyterianism, flourished. It flourished here and had a huge impact on this country and has deeply impacted it for hundreds of years for the good. And this is true even as many of those same Christians engaged in the sin of chattel slavery and direct rejection of Exodus 21. And I, I'm absolutely for people receiving the gospel, but that is no guarantee that it will turn people away from their blind spots on their own sin or their injustices or, or what have you. You know, so for us, it's very easy to look back, I mean, in a certain sense, looking back to the sins of the 17th, 18th, and 19th century is like, you know, shooting ducks in a barrel. It's very easy. What will our grandchildren say about us and how we approach the gospel and what our blind spots were and what our injustices were? Because they're there. They absolutely are there. Now, there's, there's plenty of churches that just preach the gospel and they care very little for their neighbors or hardly think to care for them, even when Jesus says those two things go together. Now, to others, talk of justice and the gospel, now that sounds suspiciously liberal. Like so much of the wokeism that's in, in vogue today that follows whatever social justice movement is currently fashionable at the expense of core biblical teaching. It's all justice, typically is defined by left-leaning politics and no orthodoxy. So in my view, and, and I know lots of pastors who think the same way and are willing to say these sorts of things, even though it's dangerous these days, American Christians tend to read passages like Isaiah 2 in light of whatever secular political affinities they have. 
letting ideology guide their reading instead of reading Isaiah at face value in light of the context of the whole Bible. So in our circles, when we talk about the Messiah and the kingdom of God or things like salvation or redemption, what we tend to focus on to the exclusion of things like what Isaiah talks about is merely, it's merely our individual salvation. And of course, there's something to that. Of course there is. God loves you, singular, and has set his heart on you, singular, and has made his home in you, singular. But this passage is about y'all. It's about the people of God together, y'all, and the hope of the nations and the world, which is a really big y'all. So for some people in our circles, you know, things like justice or peace have very little to do with the gospel, despite the radically different life God has given to his people and the promise of a future redeemed world ruled by a very real political king, which by the way, he's ruling now. Jesus, the Messiah, which is a royal term. Jesus, the Messiah, through his life, death, resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father and his work through the Holy Spirit right now is about bringing justice to the oppressed, forgiveness to the wicked, healing to the broken and life to the dead, both now and in the future. It's why, for example, Jesus chose Isaiah 61. He chose him as his first public sermon. And here's how Luke describes the event in Luke 4:16. And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that is the jubilee. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. That means they were staring him down. Like, why did you read this, man? And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So when Jesus says that line, today this this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, do you think he was being figurative? As in the poor, the blind, the captive, and the oppressed are merely metaphors for spiritual conditions. Well, some of that's true, to be sure. But to put it another way, what do we actually see him doing in his ministry? Literally, Isaiah 61. So if we think of the gospel merely in terms of what Jesus does for our souls, as important as that is, we have stunted our views of the gospel, which actually takes us to Isaiah chapter one, the chapter right before our passage. So when you look at Isaiah or the Old Testament in general, it's worth asking why Israel? What's the purpose of God setting apart these people as his treasured nation? Well, perhaps the simplest way of understanding it is that what God does for Israel, he will eventually do for the world. Israel, you see, was called to be a conduit of God's grace. He was, some, he was a people God was using in order to take back 
the whole world. There to be a royal priesthood mediating God's presence, to be salt and light to the world, to really be a new Adam. She was supposed to be a just society centered on God. That's the whole point. When you start looking at all those laws in the Old Testament, that's the point. There's supposed to be a just society centered on God in the midst of an unjust world, in Eden, in the midst of the wilderness. So for example, when you see God dwelling with his people in the temple in the Shekinah glory, this was a taste, an incredible taste, but it was a taste of what is to come when God finally and totally dwells with his people in the new heavens and new earth. That's Revelation 21. When the, when the glory of God dwells throughout the entirety of creation and there is shalom, that is peace. That's Isaiah 2 in all its fullness. The Israelites, of course, they do not save people. The people of God don't save people. They proclaim the gospel that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the true God and king of the world, that he made all things visible and invisible, and that he has provided a way of redemption, a way of salvation to all people, to both Jew and Gentile alike, through this coming Messiah. So we who are in Christ, we who are in the Messiah have that same calling now to be a royal priesthood that proclaims and lives out God's salvation. It's a privilege. We are those Gentiles who have benefited because of Israel. So this was Israel's purpose and calling, and she completely blew it. She completely failed at it. In fact, Israel had, had not just failed at this calling as if she was trying to do it and just couldn't do it. She actually just rejected it. She said, I'm not going to do this at all. And here's just a few passages from Isaiah 1 that get at this. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness launched in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief for my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. So what's telling about that, that smattering of verses, or maybe chilling might be the better word, is that Israel's rejection of God was not so much seen in false worship in the temple, though false wor worship certainly happened. The worship of the temple just kept rolling right along as it was supposed to. No, Israel's rejection of God was manifested in how she treated her neighbors, especially the poor, the fatherless, and the widow. It's precisely why James in chapter one of his letter points out these very same things as the mark of true religion. That is the mark of hearts that love what God loves. So 
if the people of God have walked away from God and have chosen to be his enemies, have chosen injustice. I mean, he repeats that multiple times. They've, they've chosen injustice over loving their neighbors. How will the promise of a redeemer be fulfilled? Well, that's Isaiah 2, and it's not through Israel's efforts. Well, God assures his people, and I think this is remarkable. This is just remarkable, that despite their, not just their unfaithfulness, their rejection of him, God will still make good on his promise to Abraham. He will still bring about the promised redeemer. See, the glue that holds God's relationship to his people together the thing that guarantees the redemption of the world is not Israel's faithfulness. It's not yours either. It's God's faithfulness to you and to his promise and to his love for the world. Here's what verse two says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, this is, at least from Isaiah's perspective, a, a prophecy of the distant future when God would make good on his promise to redeem the world. And as most Presbyterians read this passage, this prophecy was initially, not completely, but initially fulfilled with Jesus' first coming. And it will be completed totally at his second coming. So as I, I like to say, we have been living in the latter days since the birth of Christ. So you can, should rightly think of Advent and Christmas as the beginning of the end of days. That's how you should see it. The phrase, he goes on to say, the mountain of the house of the Lord has in mind the temple in Jerusalem. And Isaiah sees the temple in his vision as established as the highest of the mountains, which is basically a political statement in the ancient Near East on, on God's total and ultimate authority. There's no power, there's no tower, no place of worship, no political stronghold greater than what God establishes. Now the temple, of course, was itself a, a symbolic representation of Eden. So when you go through, and we're eventually gonna get there, I promise, when you go through those sections of Exodus and you read all those, those, those details there, it's a recreation of Eden. It's all symbolism of it. And Eden, of course, is the initial place where heaven and earth came together, the place where God intended to rule together in communion with his people over all things. And again, this, this is just fleshed out in vivid imagery in the book of Revelation. And everything I'm saying here is indicated by the very next phrase. He says, and all the nations shall flow to it, that is this temple, and many people People shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this is, as you read that, among other things, this is where you need to read the entire Old Testament context here. This is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. That's the first thing you should notice. It's a reversal of the Tower of Babel. So instead of, a humanity united in its rebellion against God as symbolized in their attempt to build Eden in their own image. Now this fractured and divided humanity that has been at war with each other and with God is flowing back to God and finding unity in him. 
as an aside, you know, the Lord's, the Lord's Supper, which we're gonna be celebrating here in a few minutes, the, the, it, this presents and symbolizes uh, the present and, and future realities of just what this is talking about. That's why it's communion, right? We have flown, flowed into the temple of our God. We are in communion with him, but also with each other, right? We are the nations that have come together in unity with the Messiah of Israel. This is why Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave or master in Christ. And he isn't saying that, that race and gender don't matter. After all, they keep referring to the nations, plural, as if they're distinct and they have their own character traits and, and these beautiful things that they, they have, right? No, he, they clearly, all these things do matter or else God would not have made us this way. It's rather a statement of the equality rooted in the gospel. It's a restoration of what was lost in the fall. So God's desire is to heal humanity, not just Israel, but through Israel's Messiah. But this temple, if, if we take Jesus's claim seriously, and I think we should, this temple is not found in an actual building. In fact, it's not found in Jerusalem at all anymore. It's bigger than that. It's more remarkable than that. You see, the temple is a person. Let me say that again. The temple is a person. Jesus himself is the temple of God. It's one of the reasons they killed him. He said, I'll tear these, these stones down in three days and rebuild them. And he was referring to himself because he's Emmanuel. He is God with us. It's why it is so astonishing, so crazy, when in John 14, Jesus says the triune God will make his home in his people. It's why Paul makes his argument against sexual immorality by saying, don't you know that God has literally made his home? He has templed in you. The temple, you know, just as we see it in Revelation, has come to us. Heaven has come to earth. It's why God's people are no longer isolated to a plot of land in the Middle East, but cover the whole world. So we already see the nations flowing to the temple in Jesus because that's us. That's what we're doing. As Isaiah says, the nations, including Israel, won't want to live in rebellion anymore. They won't want to live Against him. They will want to live according to his ways. They will be like the new Adam, the Messiah himself, who delights, as Psalm 1 and Psalm 119 put it, in the law of God. Now, look at what Isaiah says next. This Messiah, this coming one, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The Messiah, you see, is a, a judge who brings justice and real peace to the world. Isaiah repeats here what the Bible consistently and unwaveringly claims over and over again, that God is the judge of this world and he will judge the world through his Messiah, his son, Jesus. In turn, the pagan Gentile nations that surround Israel, those who were dispersed at the Tower of Babel, 
will turn to the Messiah and give up war for peace. It's the reversal of Cain and Abel. As he says, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. See, God is going to turn the nation, the nations from, from warriors bent on domination and death into farmers bent on giving life to neighbor. That's, that's the image that's, that's being invoked there. It's a promise actually to restore humanity's humanity. It's changing us from fratricide to farming. You know, if war is the complete breakdown of culture and civilization, the image here is that agriculture and animal husbandry are the symbolic foundations for stewardship of the, of the world and human flourishing. I mean, that's, that's Genesis 2. And this isn't, you know, merely spiritual peace, as important as that is, nor is it a, a kind of pie-in-the-sky, hippy-dippy utopianism. No, it's the promise of literal, this-worldly peace. The Messiah will truly bring justice to this world and as his people, we are given the privilege of joining him in this now. You know, first within God's house and then second within our neighborhoods. And the thing is, you know, everybody wants peace. Everybody wants it. It's only, you know, sociopaths that, that, that thrive on conflict or dominating their neighbors or war zones or whatever. Liberal society, however, thinks it can accomplish this peace all on its own. That's what the Tower of Babel was trying to do too. You know, if we just have the right laws or a big enough police force or we defund the police or enough funding or the right people, whoever that is, running the government, then we will have peace. And yet human history says we're still waiting. We have failed to obtain it. War always breaks out one way or another. And it's like how, you know, Facebook, and if I can kick on Facebook every day, I will. It's like how Facebook keeps promising to make a new and better community, but the community it makes trades on hatred, anger, and division. Facebook and its ilk are really just the Johnny-come-latelys of the Tower of Babel, only now they do it on a global level. The Messiah brings real, genuine justice and peace on earth. It's why joy to the world or O come all ye faithful are some of the most beautiful, truly hopeful, political songs ever written. Now notice what that last verse says. It says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is fascinating to me. You know, the, the verses that came before this are a promise for the future. And this verse is a call to not just unfaithful Israel, but rebellious Israel to repent and walk in the reality of this future promise now. That's grace, that's mercy, that's love. That is, you know, live in such a way that reflects the truth of this future reality that God has promised. Do that now. And, you know, that's our, our calling too, especially as we live in the latter days that Isaiah looked forward to. And that's been our, our focus over the last three months with that series in the book of John. You know, we live in light of the Messiah who has already come and will come again to fully make things new. And so there, there is no moment, there is no relationship, no context in which we are not living in those latter days. You know, so earlier I mentioned things like Ferguson and the insurrection and mass shootings and pandemics and all that stuff. 
It's easy to think that God does not care or that he's distant. In fact, that's exactly what the world says. But our God cares deeply about those things. He's not indifferent to them. Now, sometimes his justice, it does come in this life. We have millions of examples of his justice. But sometimes it comes in the next. Either way, he will bring justice. That is a promise repeated over and over again throughout the Old and New Testaments. It's, it's knowledge of that. Knowledge of that as his people that enables us, in fact, to turn, to be agents of peace, lights in the darkness, seeking justice for our communities and to remember the least in our communities. It's why, for example, participating in the, these DHR projects or the Foster Parents Resource Closet that we're, we're, we've established, you know, to the world that, that may appear like a small passing thing that doesn't matter. What are they really doing in the grand scheme of things? But you know, if we take our God seriously, they're in fact deeply connected to what God cares about and the justice he loves. You know, we, we aren't actually called to love the whole world because that's impossible. Again, you go on Facebook, you go on Twitter, there's a thousand voices telling you to care about people. You have no idea even what continent they're on. You can't care about every single issue. No, we are called to love the particular places where God has put us. So God isn't you know, merely interested in good behavior from his people as if the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount or the fruit of the Spirit are ways of being nice. That totally cheapens the Bible and it cheapens your humanity. And I don't want to live that way. No, these are deeply, deeply moral, human, political ways of living in light of God's very real and present rule, his faithfulness, his mercy, his love for us, and his coming future justice. And because of his love for us, we flow to the temple, Jesus himself, and we are learning slowly but surely to walk in his ways. In fact, the king himself, think on this, the king himself is our brother and our teacher of infinite patience who has given us the privilege of sitting at his table now. That's Isaiah 2. Related to this is the reality that many of you yourselves have, have been deeply, deeply sinned against and have experienced real injustice in your life. And again, if you, if you consider Jesus' teaching to turn the other cheek, to love your enemy, to pray for those who persecute you, as hard as those things are, and I understand, they can feel impossible and even cruel for him to be teaching that. You can do this not because you are good or you are morally superior than the people who hurt you or because you have steeled yourself up like a stoic to do it because you think virtue is a good thing. No, it's because you are indwelled by the triune God and he has promised to bring you justice. It's how you can move from anger and hatred to pity and compassion. It may take a long time, 
But that's the work of the Spirit in your life. It's like the martyrs of Revelation 6 who died because of their faithfulness to God, who cry out to him, how long will you delay in bringing justice for our murders? And God basically says, be patient. I know it's hard. Just be patient a little longer. Just rest in me. I'm going to do it. So if you've been hurt or you are still hurting, let me tell you something. You're not suffering in vain. Your God knows. It can feel like he doesn't. It can feel like your suffering is in vain. But God knows your hurts and he's with you in them. And he has promised to do something about them. And the thing that is so scandalous about this same grace and this mercy for people who have been hurt, the thing that is, that is often missed in passages like this one, is that God offers his love and his mercy and his repentance to those who have hurt other people too, which is everyone in this room. It's not just Israel that enjoys the Messiah. It's the wicked nations that do too. It's not just Jonah. It's Nineveh too. And as we've said multiple times over the last several weeks, you know, you were either judged by the Messiah's righteousness or you were saved by it. And guess what he wants? He wants to save you by it. You know, like Paul who was responsible. Think on this. The greatest missionary ever. Murderer of God's people. Saved by that same grace like Nineveh. There is hope to be found in God's Messiah. So as we come now then to the Lord's table, and by the way, he invites his unfaithful, rebellious people to come. So you're invited to this table. Let's turn and walk in the light of the Lord. Let me pray for us as we give the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, your gospel is so big, it is so huge, it is so mind-blowing, it is so scandalous, I just don't do it justice. So I pray for us that your word would penetrate deep into our hearts and our minds, that your spirit would be at work with that word, teaching us and moving us about how much you love us, that we may know the depths and the heights and the riches of of your grace and your love because you have poured it out to us through your son, Jesus, the Messiah. I pray all of this in his name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen.